Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Insane Level members Sam C, Cringy, Cindy S, Corey S, Nathan E, Michelle H, W Jeremy D, Eric Wagner 101, and Rob Nasby. This is the tale of two stories, one told, the other untold. And yet, this is a single story, the same old story. Hey 99, do you know the French word for a gob of shit stuck in your throat? I do not. Whatever could it be? Hocal. Ew, lots of phlegm in that one. <clears throat> Excusez-moi, monsieur, I have a hocal stuck in my throat. I can't help but wonder if that somehow relates to our story today. Unfuckers, today is going to be a little different. We're going to do it in two parts. One part normal episode, one part screed. An episcreed, if you will. Can't wait. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast Just what the world needs Another basic white guy who started a podcast But it's fun because he curses You know that part of our mission is to promote awareness of indigenous issues. Whenever possible, we incorporate it into our work. One of our earliest episodes was called Culture Cancel, covering the genocide of native peoples in the United States and Canada. We spoke in depth about the truth and reconciliation efforts underway in Canada, history of residential schools in North America, and the lack of coverage of missing and murdered native people. And most recently, we highlighted the fight for First Nation people's rights in Australia with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Even our funding model is mostly about supporting Indigenous economic development. Now, you might be wondering what this has to do with New York and the Buffalo Bills. Well, everything. But you wouldn't know that from the recent coverage of the landmark deal the Bills organization just made with New York State and Governor Kathy Hochul. Let's break it down by first understanding the deal and what the media's take on it has been. I'm going to quote from a few prominent sources so you get the gist of what just happened and why some in New York are up in arms. From the New York Times. Quote, New York state officials have reached a deal with the Buffalo Bills to use $850 million in public funds to help the team build a $1.4 billion stadium, the largest taxpayer contribution ever for a pro football facility. Under the deal, the state would finance $600 million of the construction costs, while Erie County, where the stadium will be built adjacent to its current home, would cover $250 million. The remainder would be financed through a $200 million loan from the NFL that was approved on Monday, plus $350 million from the team's owners, end quote. Here's The Guardian. Quote, the bills are expected to recoup part of their cost of construction by having season ticket holders for the first time pay one-time seat licensing charges, potentially doubling the price of their ticket package, end quote. And some additional color from the U.S. News. Quote, anticipating pushback for committing taxpayer dollars to a private entity, Hochul noted the state's commitment will be returned within 22 years through player salaries and tourism tax dollars, which directly generate $27 million in annual state income. 
Unlike the New York Giants and Jets who play in New Jersey, the Bills are the NFL's only franchise based in New York. Hochul also noted the state's $600 million share covers less than half of the costs of the project, and she cited projections that stadium construction will create 10,000 union jobs, end quote. So Politico, ESPN, New York Post, every paper in Buffalo, all the same stories with slight reporting twists, like it was negotiated in secret, it's less than other deals, but still pretty steep, Hochul is from the area, so this was personal, blah, blah, blah. Only in the local papers in Western New York will you read a little bit further into the story. And we'll get there in a few minutes. But let's keep ripping this piece of the story apart as the mainstream has done. Because don't get me wrong, it's a shitty enough story without the part that I'm really going to rant about. UNFTR is also brought to you by Insane Level members, Isoke, Nick G, Cassie LMM and the Worry Clan, Nathan Surst, Nathan Second, Awesome A, Jen S, Ryan F, and Asshole. Chapter 1. Billionaire Rules Most of the coverage has this as another story about a billionaire sports franchise owner getting taxpayer dollars to support a private business that has little economic impact to the local region. This story has played out all over the nation for decades. Billionaire owner floats the idea of building a new stadium, but requires the support of the government to make it happen. Because if the government, i.e. the taxpayers, don't help foot the bill, they can just find another city all too happy to do so. State jumps through burning hoops to get the deal done. Stadium gets built. We pay for the bulk of it. Proceeds mostly go to enrich the billionaire owner, and the dollars raised through concessions and ticket sales inevitably wind up in the pockets of players who move around, large concessionaire companies domiciled elsewhere, and the jobs they profess to bring are about as plentiful as a strip mall. There's typically enormous tax breaks that rob local municipalities for decades, and the construction jobs are often filled by out-of-town contractors, with some local union workers getting a small, yet brief piece of the pie. An article in The Atlantic talks about the efforts over the years to curtail the use of tax-free municipal bonds to finance stadiums, including an attempt as early as 1986. Then the Obama administration, much later, also tried to take away any tax-free status for private stadium bonding, but it too failed. Even the Trump administration tucked in a provision to close this off, but it was scuttled at the 11th hour in the new tax overhaul, giving yet another gift to the billionaire class, specifically sporting billionaires. Now, most of the traditional media missed the classic attempt on the part of the Bills owner, Terry Pagula, to quietly threaten the state if his demands weren't met. But the sports publications picked up on it, with outlets such as ESPN and Sports Illustrated reporting on the whisper campaign that Pagula's organization started that there was interest from Austin, Texas. SI called it an old story, saying, quote, another billionaire will be holding their NFL city hostage in hopes of getting a new publicly funded stadium in which to house their tax reduction machine, end quote. Ouch. And by the way, this was news to the local officials in Austin, but it was enough to pour gasoline on the fire and bring Hochul to the table. So to review the math again, the new Buffalo Bills stadium to be built across the street from the current stadium is going to run about $1.4 billion. The state is taking on $600 million, Erie County $250 million, and the Pagula family is kicking in $350 million. The deal was such a fait accompli that the NFL already met and approved financing for the last $200 million. 
The committee, which includes representatives from half of the teams in the league, but not the Bills, approved a so-called G4 loan from the league to the Pagulas to assist them with new stadium construction. According to a source, the Pagulas are expected to have to fund at least $300 million of the projected $1.4 billion cost of the project. But this $200 million loan would cover two-thirds of that, and three-quarters of that loan amount would be paid back via revenue that the new stadium produces over 25 years. Now, to mere mortals, the $350 million that Pagula has to front still seems like a lot of money. And it is a lot of money. But here's the thing. According to Bloomberg, owner Terry Pagula has a net worth currently of $7.9 billion. And much of that is liquid, by the way, as he made the bulk of his fortune selling his natural gas company for $5.3 billion. Yes, he's an oil and gas man. Now, today, he owns the Bills, the Buffalo Sabres, a country music label, and a shit ton of real estate, with the Bills alone worth about $2.2 billion. So if Pagula's personal net worth, the $350 million, represents about 4%. And here's the kicker. They intend to recoup the bulk of it by charging this one-time fee to loyal Bills fans to retain their season tickets. So by the time the stadium opens... They'll have recouped their out-of-pocket expenses and financed the entire balance of it in multiple sweetheart deals. Now, Hochul is pleased with herself because the state will also make that money back in direct payments. Take a listen to how she breaks it down and how long it will take to make back the state's investment. In terms of direct revenues to the state of New York, over $19 million, and that number is going to continue to increase, that is what we account for from the uh, the, uh, income tax on the players' salaries. Again, that's going to continue going up, as well as the additional money equating up to a total $27 million of direct benefit because of sales tax from hospital beds, from, I'm sorry, hotel beds and uh, and restaurants and extra uh, extra, um, engagement in the community hospitality industry with out-of-town visitors coming from all over, uh, from Canada and elsewhere, who come here, stay overnight, and enjoy the experience. So that's $27 million in direct payment to the state we anticipate. And therefore, when you take that in the context of a $600 million state share, our share is paid off after 22 years of a 30-year agreement. So... The minute the billionaire opens the doors in 2026, he'll have made his money back. And he'll have a fucking insane asset on his books to increase the valuation of the team and his personal net worth. The best estimates put forward by the state are that New York will recoup its investment in 20 years. That's why people are pissed. But it's not why I'm pissed. UNFTR. And running out our sponsors for today, this episode is brought to you by pro members Knudsen and Propax. Chapter 2 Hidden from View. So we've established that the rules are now and forever tipped in the favor of the billionaire class in this nation. Same old, same old. Roads with potholes underfunded schools, homelessness, hunger. We scrape and claw for program scraps to help the most underserved populations, yet we can move mountains in secret negotiations to secure hundreds of millions of dollars for a sports team owned by a billionaire who could literally write the check. But there's another reason New York Governor Hochul wasn't sweating the budget and felt secure in her position to negotiate this 
behind closed doors, then deliver it to the state legislature just days before she announced the budget, giving them no time to review it. And by the way, for all of his bullshit, even Andrew Cuomo had moved past the days of backroom budgeting. Black and white and brown and Asian and short and tall and gay and straight. Don't worry, he's still a fucking asshole. Recall that Erie County agreed to pick up $250 million of the government's pledge to raise $850 million. That leaves the state to come up with $600 million. Here's where it gets really dicey. The Seneca Nation in western New York operates a casino and resort operation that has contributed more than a billion dollars in revenue to New York State since 2002. I'll get into the history of the agreement in a bit, but the crucial intersection of our story centers around a dispute between the Seneca Nation and the state since the expiration of the compact between the two in 2017. At the beginning of this year, tribal leaders from Seneca were negotiating with the Hochul administration over a dispute regarding the termination language in the compact. Since 2017, the nation has been putting disputed funds into an escrow account, awaiting arbitration from the courts and the federal government. The accumulated funds have grown since this time to more than $500 million. Now, in addition to the history of the agreement and where things broke down, I'm going to get into why the nation doesn't actually owe a fucking penny to the state. But first, to be clear, the nation agreed to enter into a new compact with the state that included relinquishing its share of the funds from the disputed escrow account at the beginning of this year. Take a listen. The agreement also calls for the nation to remit the disputed compact revenue share payments to New York. Most important, this nation and New York State have agreed to begin good faith discussions on a compact within the next 60 days. This agreement marks a new chapter in the relationship between our governments. So everything seemed to be moving in Hochul's favor at this point, as she was able to make headway with the nation where Cuomo had previously failed. New York had beaten the tribe in arbitration, and the decision was upheld in the New York courts. Also bullshit, but hang tight. So as far as the courts were concerned, the nation was backed into a corner, so it agreed to move forward in good faith with Hochul on a new agreement, as you heard. But before the nation agreed to ink a new deal and release the funds, it petitioned the Department of the Interior to review the case, as the compact and any disputes are ultimately the purview of the federal government since it's an agreement between sovereign states. The Biden Interior Department, now under the leadership of Deb Holland, the first Native person to ever hold the position, agreed to review it in mid-February. Now understand that the tribe wasn't bucking the courts or the state. Did it think the rulings were unfair and unlawful? Sure. That's why they petitioned the federal government, who is supposed to intervene in such affairs between sovereign states. Unfortunately for the Senecas, Hochul was secretly running out of time because, as we now know, she was about to commit the state to $600 million in funds that it didn't allocate in the budget. So instead of waiting for any comment or decision from the Department of the Interior, in March of this year, Hochul did this instead. These are the court filings backed by the federal court here in western New York, which the state of New York filed with the Senecas in Key Bank late last week. A restraining order and information subpoena, which the tribal nation says have frozen their assets and financial transactions. So to be clear, she didn't grab the money from escrow. There was no mechanism to do that. No, she got the courts to compel Key Bank, remember that, to freeze the personal and business accounts of the nation. 
Effectively, these were economic sanctions on a sovereign nation. So in an instant, tribal members and tribal businesses had their accounts and their assets frozen. Paying for that prescription, writing a check to a vendor, paying for your daycare provider, buying groceries. Business bad, fuck you, pay me. Oh, you had a fire? Fuck you, pay me. Place got hit by lightning, huh? Fuck you, pay me. This gangster motherfucker froze the assets and accounts of the people. She sanctioned them. That's economic fucking terrorism. So the nation, with no response yet from the federal government and shit out of luck in the white man's court system, and a commercial bank with a gun to their heads, had no choice but to release the funds to a triumphant hokel who needed the money for her precious fucking billionaire scheme. And the only media reporting on it is the local Buffalo media who has absolutely no sympathy for the Seneca Nation. So now let's connect even more dots and explain why this whole fucking thing is foobar from the start. Chapter 3. The Tangled Web of Fuckery I want to talk about Hochul's connection to all of this. Like, I don't know, her husband. William Hochul, a former high-profile prosecutor, is now a senior executive and counsel for a company called Delaware North. Because of this connection, Governor Hochul has agreed to recuse herself from any discussions related to concessions at the new Bills Stadium. And why is that? Good question, 99. Because Delaware North is the official concession provider at Bill's Stadium. They make a shit ton of money there. You know what else Delaware North does? Mmm, I do not. Well, 99, they're also considered one of the nation's premier gaming companies, with gaming operations all over the country. In fact, they also operate machines called video lottery terminals, a fancy phrase for slot machines that the state uses to get around the terminology of slot machines that would be in clear violation of their own gaming laws and exclusivity rights granted native casino operators. And it just so happens that Delaware North operates these very video lottery machines at a racetrack called a racino in the Finger Lakes, which is within the Seneca Nation's territory of exclusivity. Let me quickly run through how these agreements are structured so we can better understand the position of the Seneca. Okay. First off, it's obscene that any sovereign tribal nation should even require U.S. government approval at any level to run gaming operations. It was one of the biggest questions I had when reporting on the New York tribes back in the day. And it was an elder at Oneida who finally broke it down for me, basically saying that the laws governing gaming are unilateral. The U.S. government never wanted to allow something as lucrative as gaming on tribal land because it would fuck the original centers of gambling in the country like Nevada and New Jersey. Then, states figured out that if they wanted to look like they were helping First Nations with economic development while really just using them as a backdoor into the gaming world, they could grant different types of licenses to federally recognized tribes. There are different classes of gaming, see, from slots and bingo, lottery, sports, and all the way down to games of chance, which are the table games and the card games we typically associate with casinos. Anyway, so I understand why certain states made these deals, but I couldn't understand what was prohibiting tribes from opening up a casino without so-called permission and telling the U.S. government to fuck off. That's where the Oneida elder finally set me straight. He said there's technically nothing stopping them from doing it, except that no supplier in their right minds would help them. 
No bank could possibly finance the construction. Even a wealthy individual who didn't require financing wouldn't be able to procure the equipment, the security systems, the hospitality infrastructure, the slot machines, which are the real cash cow, because those companies wouldn't supply them out of fear of losing their contracts off reservation. So I get that. But it was the example that he used that is burned into my memory that tweaked me so bad for today. He said something to the effect of, a company like Delaware North would never sell us the gaming equipment because it's too risky for them. I feel like we're getting into the screed part. You're goddamn right we are, 99. Bottom line is that these sovereign nations have to procure a gaming license from the federal government, then go hat in hand to their local municipalities to work out deals. Now, understand that a state, any government, any local municipality cannot directly profit from a native gaming operation. It's against the law, the white man's law even. So they work out contributions instead, tribute for allowing them to operate and exist. Now, the Seneca deal had the nation forking over a percent of the gross total of the gaming operations for 15 years. Remember what I said about them not being able to profit from native operations. Now, let me read directly from the compact to be extremely clear. Quote, the nation shall have total exclusivity with respect to the installation and operation of, and no person or entity other than the nation shall be permitted to install or operate gaming devices, including slot machines, within the geographic area defined by, to the east, State Route 14, from Sodas Point to the Pennsylvania border with New York, to the north, the border between New York and Canada, to the south, the Pennsylvania border with New York, and to the west, the border between New York and Canada, and the border between Pennsylvania and New York, end quote. Okay, so that relates to their exclusivity. The agreement calls for the following payments of gross revenue, which is fucking insane on its own face, right? Because nobody pays off the gross of anything. It's always net. But this is what they have to pay to New York State. You ready? Ready. The contract specifically calls for years one to four, 18% annual payments to the state. Years five to seven, 22% paid semi-annually. And years eight to 14, 25% paid quarterly. Now here's the key. There's a provision that allows for a seven-year extension of the compact, assuming no material breaches. Seven years of the compact, basically the authorization to operate. Remember that the state can't be a financial partner in this. So the nation interpreted this as it was originally intended and ceased making any payments after that 14, actually technically 15-year period, because the payments were always finite as contributions. It's not a partnership. And the contributions, by the fucking way, totaled over a billion dollars over that 15 years. There is no language that talks about payments in the extension term. On this, the language couldn't be more clear. Payments are only contemplated through the 14-year period, nothing more, so 15 in total. So the Seneca Nation stopped paying and the state sued them. Fine, that's business. But the Seneca Nation fired back by explaining that not only did they hold up their end of the bargain completely, but the state had been violating the terms of the original agreement the entire time by encroaching on their exclusivity. And for this, I called in the fucking big dogs. Here to explain how this happened is my brother from another mother, John Kane. First, I gotta say right up front, 
There is nothing in the underlying federal statute, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, that allows a state to tax, charge, or otherwise impose a fee or any other kind of payment on a native gaming operation. It's just not allowed. There is an allowance for revenue sharing, but it's not required. A compact doesn't need to have one, but there is an allowance. But in order for revenue sharing to be legal, the state has to offer a concession. They have to offer something that is of, of substantial value to the gaming operation. Substantial value. And of course, that value, that benefit, must exceed the shared revenue, or it's not really a benefit. It's, it's a liability. But the state has to give something. They have to give up something to get this revenue shared with them. So what New York State offered was allegedly an exclusivity zone. All of Western New York, from the other side of Rochester right to the lake. But the devil's in the details, because what they were really offering was only that they would not do Class 3 slot machines in that area, that the state would not approve any Class 3 slots in all of Western New York. That's really the only thing that they offered in, in terms of this exclusivity. And the problem with that is the state couldn't do that anyway. It was actually prohibited by law. The state constitution prohibited Class 3 gaming in, in all of New York State. So on paper, it looks like they gave something up, but the reality is they didn't give anything up. They couldn't do Class 3 gaming anyway. But to make matters worse, they pushed their other forms of gaming within that Seneca market to, you know, relatively to the extreme. They not only expanded their lottery system, including any a full range of their scratch-offs and quick draw and lotto and all that other stuff, but they also turned their failing racetracks or failing horse racetracks into casinos, three of them right within the Seneca's exclusivity zone. Now, they didn't put Class 3 slots in there, but they put a slot machine that looked and played just like a Class 3 slot machine, but happened to stay just this side of that Class 3 designation. So they were Class 2 machines. They called them video lottery terminals, but they were nothing like playing the lottery. They were, they were slot machines. In fact, the state advertised both the locations as casinos and the machines as slot machines. They did it for years. So that's what the state did. They expanded gaming within the area that they allegedly were giving some form of exclusivity to the Senecas over. And it didn't stop there. They actually went so far as to change their constitution towards the end of the initial compact period, the initial 14 years. They, they changed their constitution so they could do class three gaming. And then and they built three casinos throughout the state, one of which is in the Seneca market, but just outside of that exclusivity zone. And then they continue to expand gaming. They, they authorize sports betting. And they didn't just authorize sports betting in the casinos. They started that way. They authorized sports betting so you could do it online. And then went, went even further with it and said, no, we're going to authorize apps for your phone so you can, you can make sports betting uh, on your phone to the state's benefit. So all of this expansion of gaming in the exclusivity zone, if, the, if that exclusivity had any value at all, which I argue it didn't, it lost its value because 
the state continue to expand its gaming within the Seneca gaming market. So the problem is, is that you, you have a violation of the underlying statute because no longer is the state offering a concession that meets or exceeds the value of the revenue that is being shared. So that's where the conflict comes from. Now, the Seneca's paid for 14 years to the tune of $1.4 billion. But at the end of that compact term, they stopped paying because what happened at the end of 14 years was an automatic renewal. But in that automatic renewal, there was no language of sharing revenue anymore. So the Seneca's kind of bit the bullet. They paid it out through the end of that 14-year period. And then once the renewal period started, they just stopped paying. So then the state says, no, you got to keep paying. Even though we've diminished the value of the exclusivity and you're paying at a rate that is called 25% of the net slot drop, which is almost 50% of the actual net revenue, you need to keep paying. And the Seneca said, no. So they went into binding arbitration, binding unappealable arbitration, where the two white guys on the arbitration panel, two out of the three, said, well, it's kind of ambiguous. And we're going to rule that ambiguity in favor of the state, which violates another federal legal doctrine, which is called the canons of statutory construction, where it says that in dealing with Native people, if there's ambiguity in a law or treaty or a contract, that ambiguity must be interpreted in favor of the Indians. And that's not what these these two guys did. Instead, they added the length of payment to this renewal period, and they did it at the highest rate, this 25% of the net slot drop. Now, the Seneca's only said, we need the Interior Department to review this thing. But the Interior Department came back to them and said, well, we really only are willing to do a review if both parties ask for that review, which is a little like telling a crime victim that we will not investigate your crime unless the, the perpetrator of that crime uh, allows us to investigate. So that's kind of where things are at. Now, ultimately, because the Seneca's lost in arbitration, the state kept pressing to get paid. This, this is money that's been accumulating since the beginning of 2017. And so just last week, this unelected governor of the state of New York decided rather than just use the courts as laid out in the gaming compact to seize the money to set in a very specific account, she decided she would freeze all of the accounts of the Seneca Nation, freezing the money that goes to the nation, keeping in mind that the sole source of public finance for the Seneca Nation comes from this gaming revenue, but freeze that. So freeze any money that would be going to a Seneca Nation member, a Seneca program, any employee of the nation or of the gaming operations, any vendor, any contractor, she froze it all, held their money hostage so that uh, that escrow account with this gaming revenue in it would be released to her. That's what Kathy Hochul did. On top of the racinos with slot machines and all of the encroachments that John just mentioned, At the very fucking moment the initial agreement ended between the Seneca and the state, the state allowed a fucking full-fledged casino called Del Lago to open within their exclusive territory. 
You can't tell me that the very second this agreement expires and they license a casino in the Seneca's backyard that they weren't keenly aware of the exclusivity language. And to show you how incestuous this all is, the owner of Del Lago recently sold to a company called Churchill Downs, which has numerous joint ventures with none other than Delaware North. Now go back to Hochul freezing Seneca's accounts for a second. She got the court order to freeze the tribe's accounts at KeyBank. KeyBank is one of the most prominent banks in upstate New York. In fact, they even have a naming rights agreement with the complex the Buffalo Sabres hockey team plays in, paying the Sabres a little over a million dollars a year. And guess who owns the Sabres? That's right, Pagula, the same fucknugget billionaire who owns the bills. So you have a governor who froze the assets of a nation at a bank that has business dealings with a billionaire sports team owner who's negotiating a backroom secret deal with that same governor whose husband's company derives significant revenue from said fucking billionaire. And they use their own courts to press their agenda before getting word back from the federal government all the while flagrantly in breach of their own shitty fucking contract. But you won't read any of this in the white media. No one's crying for the Seneca population, of course. They have gaming. Truth is, the majority of native gaming operations in the country barely turn a profit, if at all. And I mean barely. Partly because of the shit deals like this, but mostly because they operate on the most remote parts of the country that we've forced them to live in. This was the whole point of the reservation system. Put them out of sight and put them out of mind. So, of course... Nothing thrives on most native territories, but we act like we did them such a fucking favor. And when there is a successful operation like the one on Seneca land, we fuck them in the ass over and over while they hold up their end of the bargain the entire time. They're one of the largest fucking employers in upstate New York, and they've been making it happen on just 75% of the take, which is unheard of. And now along comes a brand new fucking governor with so many conflicts of interest, it's laughable. And she basically tears up the entire history and agreement and says, fuck you, pay me. Which is another thing that Harry Wallace, our partner from Puspatuck, used to tell me. One of the biggest frustrations of our system where native people are concerned is the turnover. Every couple of years, it's a new fucking dickhead and everything starts all over again. Every day is Groundhog Day when native people negotiate with the white government. And so there you have it. That's my fucking screed. The story of a Democratic governor's backroom deal to fuck the taxpayers and the native tribe to help a billionaire and her husband. Welcome to New York. I sure wish I could cough up that shit in the back of my throat. Fuck Kathy Hochul and her fucking husband. Fuck Terry Pagula. And fuck the media for keeping Native people invisible. Here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hi, hi Max. Hey, 99. You're, you're so angry. I'm, I'm pretty tweaked. I'm pretty fucking tuned up. I gotta be honest. Yeah, I'm scared. As a New Yorker, I was genuinely like, are, are they really fucking giving this away to a billionaire again? And then read the story. And you had to hunt, you really have to hunt for it. Read the story about how she had frozen the accounts at Seneca. And one of the people who's most vocal about this from Seneca, other than John Kane, by the way, who's Seneca, 
is a woman that I had done some work with in the past. And so I saw her name on a release and I was like, oh, I wonder what she's up to. And then saw that, oh my God, they'd frozen the accounts of the people and then started to piece it all together. And I was just like, what the fuck is even going on here? And here we fucking go. So Cuomo was a horrendous partner to all of the tribes throughout New York. They never got along. He was so disingenuous. He just backstabbing the entire fucking time. And he had a real superiority complex when he dealt with all of the tribes. Of course, when it came election time, he got people up there in fucking headdresses and, you know, paying homage during all these, you know, months. And then the minute it's over, it just fucking disappears once they're elected. And it's the same old, same old. And it did. It reminded me of this conversation with Harry Harry Wallace, our partner at Puspatuck Reservation, is an attorney, and he does all of this amazing work and a lot of it pro bono for other tribes in all of these type of disputes all over the country. And so I got a real lesson from him back in the day when I was doing a lot of the, the work with the upstate tribes. Um, and then I was on the road. I was on the road and I visited each territory and got to meet there were elders that their councils had prohibited gaming on their territories because they didn't like what it welcomed and what it brought and all the other elements of society, plus the addiction issues that it piles onto that these reservations have to deal with. And then I met others that were like, yeah, none of us want this. And everybody now looks at us like, oh, you got gaming. In fact, there's a fucking, some people might recall the uh, Trump when he was just a businessman and a shitty one at that in front of a panel in Congress talking about native contracts. And he says, I don't know, a lot of these Indians, they don't even look Indian. They're more black than anything. And that's how people feel. That's how they felt. And the rest of the population is like, well, fuck them. They got gambling. We don't have gambling. They got everything handed to them. But they don't understand that these things lose fucking money and steal your soul. It's like a deal with the devil to even have these things. Seneca Nation is such a standout case study in running a successful operation because it's not like the Mohegans where they had to like the Mohegan Sun where they had to literally go find people that theoretically had enough blood quantum to say that, you know, a few generations ago they were related to somebody that was once there before they were all annihilated. And then they put up a casino that all went to the benefit to the state of Connecticut. The Seneca Nation really runs this fucking thing, right? They are there. They employ everybody that they possibly can. They're always giving back to the state, to the local community. So you're talking about people in the surrounding community that live and thrive off of that gaming and hospitality operation there. They couldn't be a better fucking partner to the community and to the state. And at every turn, the state fucking sticks it right in their ass. This agreement is so full of shit. And people will say, the governor has said it herself. She's like, hey, well, you know what? I'm just following what the courts say because they lost in court. And now they got to pay up. They're your courts. This system is so fucking rigged, and that's what's so hard to explain about this, is that they create an agreement with a white government that is entirely turned over within 20 years, so they renege on everything that was part of the original intent. They go by the letter of the law at the Seneca Nation, and the state just interprets it differently, sends it to their own white court system, many of those people appointed by the fucking people that are in the dispute, and of course they lose that ruling in arbitration, and then it appeals. So they send it to Deb Holland. Hello, Deb Holland. Paging Deb Holland. Where the fuck are you, Department of the Interior? It's such fucking bullshit. So finally, there's a native person in charge of the Department of Interior, and there's fucking silence from the Biden administration. Silence. So it goes all the way from Erie County all the way up to the fucking president's office. Silence on these issues when natives reach out and say, 
But hey, you said, and it's one treaty, one promise, one contract after another that's been broken since day fucking one in this country. And nobody can write about it or see it fucking clearly because they're brown and they don't care about them. They just don't. It's the same that we talked about, like poverty shaming. We don't give a fuck about poor people in this country. And we sure as shit don't give a fuck about poor, conquered brown people in this country. It's a fucking travesty. Fuck this governor, man. I'm so fucking disappointed. I guess I'm, should I be disappointed? <laughs> What's there to be disappointed about, right? Uh, you had hope. I had hope because it's so it, disappointing to be like reminded. Cuomo, right? How could you be worse than Cuomo? When I was talking to John Kane before putting the episode together, he's like, I can't believe we're, we're actually rooting for fucking Cuomo. Mm-hmm. And he's probably going to slap me for mentioning that. He even said that on a call. But I mean, that's how fucking shitty this is. And the Delaware North connection. Hello? Are you fucking kidding me? They're one of the largest gaming companies in the country. Forget about just the concessions. And this billionaire motherfucker, he's going to make every dime back the second they open the gates. The second they open the gates. And the government used the fucking Seneca money to fucking pay for it. It's just so shitty. So that's my post-show musing on that fuckery. What's wrong with their old stadium? Uh, It depends who you ask. So you ask a Bills fan and they're like, I love our stadium. Just like, you know, Mets fans used to love Shea kind of yeah, thing. But it's I know like. City feels like the nicest one around. Yeah, I'm like, I'm so happy they knocked that down. Roof. <laughs> so the Bills have one of the oldest stadiums in the NFL. Okay. Who fucking cares? So, so build a new one, right? Yeah. Get your loan from the NFL, right? And then go finance the rest of it through the local bank, through a fucking bank and, and private renovate equity. renovate it? Uh, way more expensive to renovate it, believe it or not. And it would take too long. So it's going to take, so I get, listen, people build new stadiums. It happens, right? It's something that's got to be replaced every 25, 30 years. Totally get it, that's, right? No, I'm, I'm putting my foot down. Build it to not be, <laughs> we should not build these giant structures to be obsolete in less than half a century. So figure it out. I mean, I'd like to think that like, okay, so like if you look at like Wrigley or you look at Fenway, they figured it out because it's part of the cachet. It's part of the culture. But those are also places that are like really built into the fabric of the city and you're never going to replace that. And then they're also like always sold out because they have great connections and great loyalty to their team. The Bills have the same thing, by the way. I mean, the culture in Buffalo, my best friend is from Buffalo. And they're the culture, that they are rabid. And they're not like, uh, you know, Philadelphia fans that are going to like literally throw batteries at you. They're like really, they're, they're like good people up there. I mean. Some some of them, sure. I, no, I mean, they're really, it's, it's. Have you been to downtown best. Buffalo recently? It's hardcore. It's, it's <laughs> hardcore. It's not, listen, I don't want to live there, right? But the point being, like, they take their football very, very seriously. It is so ingrained in the local culture. You're mansplaining football to me right now. No, no, no. I'm mansplaining. I'm, I'm definitely mansplaining Buffalo. I lived upstate for many years. Okay, so you know, right? Do you know how many times I've heard Let's Go Buffalo chants when it's, like, the middle of the summer and we're nowhere near Buffalo? <laughs> right, right. And, and, but they're just there and they're chanting. Listen, I root for the fucking New York Jets. They haven't won since I've been alive. 
They don't even play in this state. I have no idea why I'm even tethered to them. But Amplify that times a thousand, and that's a Buffalo fan. So I get it if they want their own stadium. Listen, be like the fucking Packers, right? Let, I like that. Right? Let the, let the fucking community own half of it. If you want to be like a really good guy and you want to raise some fucking money, they'll fucking pay for it, right? I understand sports culture, and I get it, and I'm willing to concede that. Fine. That wasn't my issue. It was more, it was more the cavalierness that it was like, yeah, they need to be replaced every 30 years. And I'm like, we have environmentalists listening to that that aren't going to take kindly to oh, it. Oh, listen. So I just wanted to I get it. at least be like, hey, maybe like fucking don't do that. Yeah. You know? like, no, it's true. You know, we just because sports culture is important to this country and I know it I mean to the world doesn't mean that we should just rest on our laurels about the way we do things. Well, and that's why I put the part in there about like, you know, well, what's the homelessness problem like in Buffalo? What's the what's the poverty right there? What's I'm the sure child hunger rate? Kathy Where are Hochul's the, po- the potholes like homeless people to live in the old stadium? <laughs> that w- How magnanimous that would yeah. be. Of her, but I bet she'd charge them. <laughs> yeah, that helps. Fucking bitch. Whoa. <laughs> I'm done with it. I'm just done with all of them. So fucking bad. And it's funny because so here we are in unfucking the Republic talking about unfucking like really big ideas like, you know, immigration and racism. One podcast and racism. That's it. Right. (laughs) I love that, by the way. Uh, And by the way, great job on show notes last week. I mean, seriously, great job. That was awesome. You said you you were a little delirious, but I didn't feel that at all. I had tried to record it the day before and it didn't work. <laughs> and I was like, it, that was real delirium where I was just talking and I was like, what words are coming out of my mouth? <laughs> so then doing it the second time, having done half of it already, I was I just I was just talking, you know, Listen, talking to myself. I just blacked out for the last 45 minutes. <laughs> I'm not even sure what's going to come out of my mouth for this episode. So uh, I get it. But I, I, I really, I, I actually sent you an email that I was... It was so fun for me, just like the 99 Manny takeover before, to actually tune in as a listener and not know what was going to happen next. It was just so, it was so cool. You have such a good, I don't know, you just have such a good way about you. It's such a natural way about you, you know, in, in speaking about our audience and the things that we love. And it's so evident that you've developed a relationship with so many of our listeners, like a one-to-one relationship with them, that it that it's fun to listen to you talk to them. So I appreciate the job you did. I, by the way, on Fuckers, I was on the road. I was traveling. And I just didn't feel like I could get my head together enough to contribute in 99, had it locked down anyway. So, And plus, I was obviously just like raging and, and raving in my own head about this upcoming episode. So anyway, we are going to take a quick break. It's not going to sound like it to you, but I need to fucking calm down and go through some of the notes that 99 put together from the last episode. Hello, unfuckers. My name is Manny Faces, but some of you might know me by my given name, Bobby Elbows. Anyway, in last week's show notes, 99 read a passage from John C.'s comment in which he states his belief that I don't get the love I deserve in regards to how I expertly assemble each show into a literal sonic masterpiece every week. Thank you for that, John. I do indeed receive love. But if I wasn't so humble, I would admit that I can never receive enough love because I simply don't believe enough love even exists, which would make me feel that my utter genius was truly acknowledged and appreciated. But I am very humble, so I would never say that. So it is certainly appreciated that you and other Manny Stans, I believe we've opted to call y'all Stannies, take the time to compliment me. And yes, Midwest Monster, as you tweeted, I am very delicate, like a shy, humble, unparalleled genius flower that thrives from a more than occasional watering of ego-boosting mana from the unfucking universe. So I do appreciate you as well. This has been a public service announcement. 
The thoughts expressed do not necessarily reflect those of Max, 99, or UNFTR as a whole, though they should, because obviously. We now return to our irregularly scheduled podgramming. All right, unfuckers, we are back. I know it wasn't long for you, but it was actually a couple of hours for us to get my poop in a group. I am sufficiently calmed down now, I promise. And uh, now we're going to get into something that is usually in our new format reserved for show notes. But 99 left some critical Australian feedback for us to dissect together for this episode. So we're going to do that in post-show musings right now. Just a little teaser coming up. We have a quickie next week and then a couple of collaborations that I'm really excited about in the following week. So we're going to touch on some very deep themes. So we need some time to prepare for those. But we're also reaching out to some friends of the show to help us prepare for the uh, two deep dive shows after that. So coming soon. One is on religion and the other is on Hollywood. So exciting stuff. Anyway, 99, let's get into... Not show notes, but post-show musing show notes of sorts by starting with Brian C. Are all of these actually from Down Under Fuckers? I think just about all of them. A few Canadians, I think, weighed in also, and some maybe Americans in regard to me not knowing any Australian bands. Oh, yeah. People were... <laughs> it's so funny. That's the thing that people were like most tweaked Very about. They're mad. like, what? I Are said, you kidding? I said last week, I know that they have bands in Australia. <laughs> I just couldn't think of any because I was just anticipating. No, listen, I was right there with you. I couldn't remember what they were yeah. either. So, And there's some really good suggestions and some ones, obviously, we've never heard of that yeah. they're local bands. So. And then my sister was very mad that I didn't include Australia by the Kinks. So shout out to her. Okay. <laughs> she who shall remain unnamed. 99 sister. Yeah. Sister 99. Yeah. And a half. She, well, she's older, right? Yeah. So 100. Sure. That makes sense. Or 101. We heard from 101. Yeah. Oh, yeah. she yeah. has a name? Yeah, she's 101. I love that. There you go. That's so cute. Make it so. So our first is from Brian C. And I may dip in and out of really bad Australian accents, as many of you commented that I have. And, uh, I'm working on it, and I will not attempt, as one listener cautioned, a New Zealand accent. I have uh, actually a friend from New Zealand, and I cannot, I cannot even understand. Just, it's a, it's a very, very difficult accent to to emulate. So I will do a piss poor Australian accent at points, but I won't attempt a New Zealand accent. But here's Brian C. Is that a pretty good episode? But I think you missed a lot on immigration and the status of the illegal refugee islands in Manus and Nauru. I did and still have not read anything about it. I think that's a really interesting subject for us to dig into, especially if we dig further into, you know, refugee stories, as I'm sure we will down the road. So not excited to learn about that, but very interested to learn about that. So thank you for the recommendation, Brian C. Andrew L. corrected me on something. I appreciate the uh, the corrections, by the way. If you ever hear something that is a little bit askew, feel free to, to reach out to us and we'll always cover it in this format said the LNP, I think you said NLP in the episode, is the Liberal National Party, the state opposition in Queensland where I live. They're very similar to and allied with the federal coalition, but the nationals are considered equal partners, which no one even pretends is the case with the coalition. Thank you for that quick correction. I'm sure that I did mix those letters up, so good deal. And Gators, actually, we're going to spend a little bit of time on this. Gators sent in a really good long email 
I'm just going to grab a couple quick highlights. Starts out with a little compliment, said, uh, not a bad rep up of Australia. The fuckwits that run it and the others that just live here. How was that? I think it was good, but I don't know if I'm the best judge here. <laughs> I'm sure we'll hear. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Um, it's better than your Irish. Oh, clearly. Yeah. Clearly. So. Bobby McDee's fully, fully shamed me out no. of uh, attempting that. Yeah, uh, he's tired of you. He's he, he's just, he's done with it. Um, so Gator's email is really good and also very funny. I mean, it's like the most Australian email you could possibly get. I'm just going to read a couple clips here. Nothing's changed. The country is still run by dead shits, run by unbelievers in reason, peace, climate change, economic equality, justice for First Nations people, government regulation, moderation, science, facts, and proud of it, and backed in by a bunch of media creeps and shits mostly paid by Murdoch, but not all, so weird and vicious that they'd make the P.P. McGinnis feel anxious. Quadrant Magazine, we talked about Quadrant a lot in the episode, by the way, was mostly for and by pissants. Rupert Murdoch's The Australian, which laughably purports to be a balanced and rational broadsheet, was far more important and home to far more influential fuckwits and deadshits. Friedmanites, Hakins, goat molesters, P.P. McGinnis, and other neoliberal perverts staged their daily orgies there. I, I mean, everything that the Aussies write is just funnier. And I wish I could perfect the accent because it's definitely funnier when you say it in their voice. David E. said, uh, no doubt you'll have a lot of Australian replies along these lines, but nevertheless, Bernie Sanders would probably be considered a centrist in Australian politics. So David is trying to really kind of frame much in the same way that we had the Canadian audience frame Canadian politics to us with respect to America and European politics as well, for example, that even their shitbags are still kind of to the left of what we have here. Like, we are so far afield from uh, normalcy and from liberal politics in the United States, we can't even recognize it. So he goes on to say, we've had universal government health insurance for the last half century and universal government disability insurance for the last 10 years. The latter program was copied from New Zealand, which usually leads us on social programs because they do not have the Murdoch media hanging like the dead albatross around their neck. Australians are far more disposed to accept government in their lives. For example, Canberra, pronounced Canberra, and I got a couple corrections on this because I kept saying Canberra, <laughs> where I live has a COVID vaccine. And it's so funny because when I was listening to clips of people talking about it, I, they'd say Canberra. And I felt weird about being like Canberra because it would be like that newscaster in the United States that's like, and now there's problems happening just south of the border in Nicaragua. So I didn't want it to seem like I was trying to copy there. Anyway, so... Canberra, where I live, has a COVID vaccination rate in excess of 99%. For the same reason, we accept light-touch compulsory voting, which, looking at the U.S. situation, is a very good idea. So imagine that. You actually get a fine if you don't vote in Australia. And they just, they're just like, yeah, cool, everybody has to vote because it's a fucking democracy and they're proud to actually participate in it as opposed to the, in the midterms in the United States when like nobody participates. And that's why all of the shitbags, and we're going to talk about this, come closer to the midterms on fuckers. That's why all the shitbags can kind of sneak in in those midterms because nobody's paying attention and it's only like that minor elite that, you know, can really rally. Yeah, you know what? We're going to talk about it because it's really important for us come the midterms when we talk about how a small minority that really works and is tethered to the parties winds up showing up and turning the balance of elections in really key districts. 
unlike if you had a place with compulsory voting where people would actually have to you know, use their brains and vote for people that they really wanted to. There's no laziness in that type of system. So I love that he called that out. And he closes with Australia suffers and benefits from a resources curse. I thought this was really important. We have a couple of people that gave us feedback on, without calling it the resources curse, but I like that it's framed that way, about how the economy was built around mining and fossil fuels. So it's hard to break from that's hard to imagine a future without that when your entire economy has been built around it but did say also that there's other things that they have that if they had the leadership and they you know really believed in climate change and had the will that they would be kind of reforming and reformatting the economy around renewable resources etc cetera, etc cetera. so great comment right there and our oh american buddy so cam uh, wrote in max you totally squandered the opportunity to do a steve irwin impersonation in post show musings when you said very very problematic i probably could have and i probably would be getting even more abuse cam for how first of all we included a lazy reference to steve irwin and uh, that i abused the australian accent so but appreciate you uh, chiming in there and ray Fraff, the person who basically co-authored the episode for us, gave us some feedback, was so giddy that we actually wound up doing the episode, wanted to uh, correct a couple of things. So here are some corrections. Turnbull, that's Malcolm Turnbull, the former prime minister, didn't resign. He was ousted as PM for having the gall to push some flaccid legislation on climate change. That That is correct. And I, uh, I wasn't either clear about that or I actually just got it wrong. So thank you for the correction. And a few pronunciation corrections. Anthony Albanese, I was saying Albanese, last name is pronounced Albanese or Albanese. Australia's capital, here it is again, is Canberra. He said, sheesh, you're the Canberra. And you got the pronunciation of Melbourne right. The born part is something like bun, like a burger bun. So it's Melbourne. So we got that right. Woo! And in terms of the resource issue, Rafe Raff addresses that as well, says we have a fuck ton of sun, like truckloads of fuck tons. We could become the Saudis of renewable energy. And also says that we have the largest deposits in the world for lithium, second after Chile. So this is interesting because Rafe Raff acknowledges that lithium is problematic, but says, you know, by the way, it's here. And that could be a tremendous economic engine for Australia. Now, we know that lithium is a dirty extraction model. So that is problematic. And it's a finite resource as well, so not the greatest place to move into. But if you're holding your phone right now, you'll know how important it is. And the other thing is renewable energy. So Rafe Raff is upset, uh, and rationally so, that foreign companies are coming in, setting roots, and creating renewable energy businesses and opportunities. The interesting thing about that is that it's not as easy, unless you're going to talk about manufacturing panels or anything that goes into distribution systems for energy. There's really nothing exportable about renewable energy. And so you have to understand the replacement economic value of moving away from fossil fuels to use renewable energy. It's like the people that come to you and say, Listen, I know it's $15,000 to retrofit your house with solar panels, but it will pay itself back over 15 years. And then after that, you'll be, you know, you basically have your energy for free. That's sort of the same thing. It's hard to wrap your mind around converting those type of traditional industries into a renewable energy source 
because there's nothing exportable about it. There's nothing you can really milk other people for. The profit incentives aren't as deeply entrenched there. But there is something to be said for cost savings and, of course, planetary savings, you know, to be able to actually improve the climate. There's something to be said for that in building out an industry that will help other industries save money. So a little more challenging in Australia because of the weight of fossil fuel industries in terms of their GDP, but definitely something that they should obviously be easily able to maneuver into for cost-saving initiatives. So appreciate that. Now, those are the emails of consequence from uh, our down under fuckers. Why don't we move into social media and start off on the Twitters. 99, what do we got? Yeah, our friend Obese Andy said, great episode. It's worth mentioning that voting is compulsory. We get fined for not voting, but we're allowed to invalid vote. So, okay, yes. But also, Obese Andy's Australian. You're the last one to know. I, I am the last one to know. Did everybody know this ahead of me? We all knew. Damn it. We've all been talking about it behind your back. <laughs> well, good on you, Obese Andy. That's terrible. Oh, <laughs> good on you. Oh, jeez. Go on. I didn't even think Australian people said piss off, but you, piss were, off. you were running with it. I was. To me, they do. It, it feels more British. It is. They're a former British convict. I know, but I just hear Australian people <laughs> saying cunt, you know? Wow. Yeah. It's different there. All right. You dropped the C word for the first time on our podcast. <laughs> did I bleep it? You did that. No. No. Or twat. 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 It's different. It's not It's not the full word. The A is different. Twat. I'm just letting 99 run with this because it's better coming from her. I have no problem with it. All right. At least, no, that's not true. I don't want to give you carte blanche to say <laughs> the C and T words. Because it's all I need is but an opening. I can say them. Oh, but um. Wow. You said it. I didn't mean it that way. I know, way. but you have to be more careful. You're right. You're right. When you're all right, I you're right. All an opening. <laughs> Uh, and then lastly on Twitter, not Australian, but at Wild Eyed Bob, who we know is. Knudsen. He said, this was before he listened to the episode. He said, I wonder how Max addresses the hashtag down under fuckers gun problem and solution. Yeah, I fucked that up. I really should have attacked that. I apologize for that. So maybe what we'll do is cover that in a Second Amendment uh, episode that we'll definitely drop this year. Yeah. Or just a unfucking gun control because you know other countries don't have the second amendment right yeah no, <laughs> meaning yes i know yes just you know true before people were like oh you know that's how <laughs> wait not say. every country has our constitution no isn't that weird <laughs> i can't believe that uh take us over to facebook so Aaron E. said, thanks, Team UNFTR, for your work. You're welcome. New Zealand would prefer to stay below the radar. Get it. Every enlightened American should visit and see what was once a socialist paradise now struggling to cope with globalist interference, pandemics, and Rupert Murdoch's dragon tears. So that is in reference to Australia I or think, New Zealand? I think New Zealand, right? Yeah. He said our most accurate relationship description is Australia's Canada. Yes. <laughs> He's My making it more appealing to unfuck, though. True. So we were deliberately making fun of New Zealand because I was trying to tease New Zealanders out mm -hmm. and none of them bit, which now totally tracks with them staying under the radar. Like they probably heard it and they were like, fuck this guy, but we're not going to give him the satisfaction. My dad, years and years and years ago, when he was a, when he was a kid, a teenager, 
their best family friends moved to New Zealand and never came back. And they would send postcards back to their family and say, you really need to come here. You're not going to believe it. It's paradise. We will never step foot back in North America ever again. I think we talked about it in an early episode. I said I want to move there because of the sheep. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And I'm so curious to see what it's like there. So nothing against our down under fuckers, but if we were to ever hit that part of the planet, I think we're going to New Zealand first. I don't know. I don't think that's fair. We did a whole episode about Australia. We didn't do a New Zealand episode. I know, but I think the New Zealanders would quietly welcome us there and be like, okay, shh, yeah, we know all about you. Just keep a low profile when you're here. Don't say the C word, 99. I think they say it there too. I doubt it. I don't. <laughs> okay, New Zealanders, we won't call you out by name on the show, but why don't you get in touch with us? Kiwi Let us fuckers. know. You Kiwi fuckers. Do you use the C word down there? Everyone uses the C word. I don't think they do. I think they're better than all it's of like us. It's like however the universal word is no. Everyone knows cunt. You said it again. <laughs> You're just untethered today. You're, you're you, out of control. You're saying that every, every week you're like, what's wrong with you? What are you going to accept me for who I am, dad? Well, you know, I was, you know, kind of lit up. We had to even take a break <laughs> that I was so, you know, off I the rocker. I learned it from you. But I wasn't dropping the C word. <laughs> not publicly. No, not publicly. <laughs> Never publicly. And only to you and only in private when the studio door is locked. Can mm -hmm. you believe this fucking C word? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Anyway. But you say the word C word because you're still, you know, a very polite I man. I can't get it out. You're right. <laughs> um, Whiskey Daisy weighed in on the, the music controversy and said, glaring Australian band omissions, In Excess, Kylie wow. Minogue, and Midnight Oil. Midnight Oil, so big for me. I don't, I don't know who that is. I'm sorry. How can we sleep when our beds are burning? You don't. Right. That's Midnight Oil, man. Mm -hmm. That bald front man. Can't remember his name. They were fucking amazing. I'm sure, he would love that you just that bald front man. That's his name. Yeah, but it, yeah, whatever. You know, that was like oh, his Billy thing. Corrigan. Yeah, <laughs> same guy. Definitely, definitely. Uh, Andrew, I by the way included the divinals, and also said that I reckon Manny would love classic Aussie hip hop hilltop hoods. Weigh in here, Manny, if uh, you've ever heard of them or if you're going to check them out. Uh, despite being a giant uh, hip-hop head, of course, I'm still an American, so <laughs> I don't care about other countries' hip-hop. Uh, that's not entirely true. I hadn't heard of them previously. Jumped in real quick to check out some stuff, and I do fucks with it, so I'll, I'll be listening to more. Thanks for that. Andrew said that his favorite Aussie folk music, Muso. Muso. Slang. Oh. Is Uncle Kev, a member of the Stolen Generation, First Nations children who were taken from their parents and basically tortured in missionary schools and then often used as unpaid workers. Uncle Kev. Okay, down under fuckers. Check out Uncle Kev if you haven't, if you already know about it, then everybody else on the planet, go check out Uncle Kev. I love that story. So lastly, on the music controversy on Facebook, Jenna said, at the very end of the episode, 99 and Max discuss Australian bands and not knowing many. I know one. Silver Chair Frog Stomp was my jam in the 90s. Silver Chair rings a bell, but I, I don't think it's the right bell. Huh. Okay. All right. Thanks, Janice. Appreciate that. And rounding out social media on Instagram, we have Astro Vandalism. Loved the Australia episode. Learned a lot. Surprised by how similar they are to Canada. 
Honestly, it's like looking in the mirror. Took a long time to separate from England, did so relatively peacefully. An international reputation for being kind, hospitable, and welcoming to others. Committed atrocities on a genocidal level to the indigenous peoples. Large, insanely beautiful country that is overlooked and destroyed in pursuit of outdated and unhealthy energy resources. Even the convoluted election system and the mechanism of parliament reminds me of our system up here in the frosty north. I might have been yanksplained, but I grew up on Jon Stewart, so I'm used to it. I love that post, by the way. I think that is excellent, and there is a lot of alignment there. And I love that Canada and Australia were the first two separate unfuckings that we really did, outside of a lot of the Caribbean work that we did, obviously, but full-fledged country-based unfuckings. And there are a lot of similarities. So good stuff there, astro-vandalism. Thanks for making the parallels there. And so that's all we have. That is our not show notes, show notes, tucked inside of post-show musings (laughs) for the week. Breaking news, though. Yes. Katanji was confirmed as we're recording. And by such a slim margin. It's so fucking sad. God bless America. Nothing to to see here. Land that I love. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by the great Many Faces Media sound design master. Just circling back to the Aussie music and hip-hop thing, I am so glad none of y'all mentioned Iggy Azalea. Thank you. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. And the show is hosted by me and distributed with love. Today is my mom's birthday. Just putting it out there. It's my first of the firsts without her, and I'm missing her terribly every single day. So happy birthday, Mom. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at unftrpod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash unftr. Visit our bookshop at bookshop.org slash shop slash unftrpod. And for the love of God, would you get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop, particularly in light of this yeah. episode. If you sit through today's episode and you don't buy coffee, <laughs> you're canceled. <laughs> and read our essays, our free fucking essays on Substack at unftr.substack.com. Hey, Max. Yeah. If I wanted to support the indigenous people, if I'm not a coffee drinker, yep. can we throw some links and show notes to some great organizations? Absolutely. Okay. So look out for those unfuckers. See you next week. Bye, cunts. <laughs> Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Insane Level members Sam C., Cringy, Cindy S. My stomach's growling. <laughs>